Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 12, we're going to continue through our study in the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 12 is kind of where we are. We're kind of at a transition period in Acts. The church has now been established. It's gone from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Antioch was the, the first Gentile church as we saw in Acts chapter 11. And so the keys of the kingdom have been unlocked, and now there's opposition. And uh, as we kind of uh, shift gears here, uh, the thing about the Bible is it is a narrative, okay? And so we're in a lot of narrative. We're in a lot of story right now. And so a lot of it is just descriptive of what took place and not a lot of prescriptive stuff is going to come out of it. But there are things that we can glean from it, things we can see from God's word. And in fact, all of scripture is the biblical narrative of God's redemptive plan through his son, Jesus Christ. And so All of Scripture points towards Jesus Christ, his redemptive plan for us. And so as we get into Scripture, Acts chapter 12, we see that there there is now a a war being waged against the church. And so the battle lines are drawn. Have you heard that idiom before? The battle lines are drawn. That means that there's two opposing forces, uh, two opposing people, uh, two opposing thoughts. The line in the sand has been drawn, right? You got to figure out which side you're going to be on. And so this is exactly what has taken place. The battle lines have been drawn. The story I read this week about uh, Pastor R.C. Sproul, when he was studying in the Netherlands in the late 1960s, he randomly struck up a conversation with a Dutch woman. The conversation was common. It was enjoyable. They had a good interaction. But as soon as the story was over, someone nearby ran over to him and said, why were you talking to that woman? And his response was, why wouldn't I talk to that woman, right? And he said, well, don't you know, she collaborated with the Nazis some 30 years ago. No one talks to her. See, some 30 years ago in this village, in this town that he was in, the battle lines were drawn, and people had to decide which side they were going to be on, and this lady, unfortunately, chose the opposing side. You see, the battle lines are drawn, and they're drawn against the kingdom, And it's not that they're just drawn out there in the world as we are witnessing, as we're seeing in our our nation, our culture, our world. We're seeing that the world seems to get darker and darker and darker as far as we're concerned. And we see that the battle lines are drawn. But the battle lines are drawn, and they were drawn a long time ago in our hearts. A long time ago. We're worried about it creeping into our homes. But we should first be concerned about it creeping into our hearts. And so the battle lines are drawn, and there's three enemies that we're going to see that actually arise in in a a famous name in the Bible called Herod. This would be the grandson of Herod the Great that pops up in Acts chapter 12. But we're going to see three enemies that rise up against the kingdom of God. And the first one is this, the enemy of evil. And you're going to see the enemy of evil pop up because, well, Scripture tells us, let's read 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10 real quick. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wonderful verses, but it reminds us that there's an enemy. 
There's an enemy of evil that is seeking to devour us. The battle lines have been drawn, and let me tell you, they've been drawn first and foremost in our hearts. Paul would say it in Ephesians chapter 6 this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. The battle lines are drawn. Evil is at the doorstep. It's at the doorstep of each and every one of our hearts. And we do not war against the things of this world, but against powers and principalities of this dark world. And it's seeking a way to destroy us. The battle lines are drawn. Jesus would say this in Luke. Chapter 11, 17 through 23. He's being confronted about his ministry in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divided his spoil. Here's the important verse I want you to see. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's interesting, he talks about a house divided, and sometimes, if we're honest, our hearts are divided. And the battle lines are drawn, and you got to pick which side you're going to be on. But a lot of people, a lot of Christians decide that I want to straddle the line. I'd like to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I'd like to have one foot for me and one foot for God. I kind of just want to be middle ground here, but there's no real place to have middle ground because the battle lines are drawn, and you got to decide which side you're going to be on. And he says, if you're divided, it will fall. And then he says, whoever's not with me, is against me. He doesn't say whoever chooses Satan is against me. He says you're either on my side of the line or you're against me. He says if you're not with me, you're against me. You and I, if we're not intentionally putting our hearts focus on the Lord, on his glory and his kingdom, then we can find ourselves very easily being against him. And the reason is is because there's two other There's two other enemies that pop up, and the next one is people-pleasing. We see people-pleasing pop up because Herod is a people-pleaser. He's a politician, the enemy of people-pleasing. Galatians 1.10 says, For for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, a lot of us, we like to toe the line on both sides because we like to please people. We like to be seen in a good light. We like to have people like us. He says here, Paul says, look, if I was trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul writes again, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The battle line has been drawn in our hearts. 
God knows our hearts. He knows where we stand. And Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If we try to please man, we will find ourselves trapped. Trapped in a war. Trapped on the wrong side of the line. As Leon Morris puts it, it is part of fallen human nature that even those charged with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel can fall into the trap of trying to be popular rather than be faithful. Do you know that you and I are both charged with the responsibility of the gospel? And yet we can fall into the trap, because this is human nature, to try to be more popular than faithful. Students, I'm just going to talk to you real quick. Listen, high school, it's not fun, okay? Most of us remember high school, most of us. And you know what's coming against you in high school and in middle school? Wanting to be popular over be faithful to God. I'm dead serious. And if you're not careful, you'll find yourselves on the wrong side of the line. Because you'll care more about what people think of you than you do about God knowing your heart. The battle line's been drawn. And there's a war against the kingdom. And you've been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel that saves people's lives. And we have to decide which side of the line do I want to be on. And people-pleasing and wanting to be popular, that really quickly and easily pulls you to want to toe the line on either side. The last one is self-exaltation. We see at the end of this chapter, Herod, he tries to take the light of being a god. And he suffers and he dies for it. Proverbs 16, 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Arrogant in heart. The battle lines are drawn, and guess what? They're drawn in the heart. Griffith Thomas says it this way, Humility is the direct effect of consecration, because pride is and has ever been the great enemy of true righteousness. Martin G. Collins says it this way, The self-exalted person is he who thinks he stands on his own merits. Self-exaltation is an excessively intensified sense of well-being, power, or importance. It is worst, it is self-tribute, self-praise, self-honoring, self-glorifying, and self-worshipping. It overly breaks the first three commandments by placing oneself as more important than God, setting oneself up as an idol, and making the name of one's God I or me. You see, there is an enemy, and the enemy wants us to think that we can be Toe in the line. People-pleasing, self-exaltation, those, those things cause us to not choose a side. And it's all an enemy against the kingdom's advance. And this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 12. The enemy of evil, people-pleasing, and self-exaltation. But Christ is greater. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to tackle Acts chapter 12 together. Father, we thank you so much for your time and this word. We thank you, God, that it is the biblical narrative of your redemptive plan through Jesus Christ, that we have life after death. We have hope in the midst of pain and suffering, and we know that you are a sovereign God in control of all things. And God, you're working all things out for your glory and your will. And Father, we thank you that you've called us by your grace and your mercy, that you've allowed us to know the good news, the gospel of God, instill in us a desire to be on the right side of the line, to proclaim the gospel to those who are hurting, to those who are lost, to those who need you. Father, today, if we have chosen popularity 
over faithfulness. God, we repent. Change our hearts, oh God. Make our hearts new. Father, we are only able to repent because you change us. Father, I would ask that you would mold and shape our hearts and you would fill us with your righteousness because there's not one of us who is. Father, we come to you. We cling to you. We thank you for being a great, great God. In Christ's name, amen. First thing that we see is Christ advances his kingdom with his sovereignty over our situations. Now, as we get into chapter 12, there's a very dark situation that's going on in the life of the church. This is some 10 years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so we find ourselves here, and the church has been established. There's been a lot of missionary things going on. The church has advanced. And it begins like this. At about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's 16 in total. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God to God by the church. So here we go. We have King Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, the great Herod that tried to kill all the babies when Jesus was born. Well, when King Agrippa's dad was um, killed and when he died, they quickly rushed him off to Rome. So he was raised in a Roman palace in a, in a home where um, he would have been hanging out with Caligula and, and different people like that. And so he was very much a part of the Roman culture, but he also held to his Jewish heritage. And so when he comes back and he's put back in charge, he's over all of this area, and he decides that he's going to play the political game of, of appeasing the Jews, playing to them, but also playing to the Roman government. And so he's caught in the middle. He's in this people-pleasing mode. And when he finds out that there's this, this Jewish sect of Christianity, he says, you know what, we're going to eradicate it. And the best way to eradicate it is to kill the key leaders. And so he starts with James. James, this is James. This is one of the inner three. This is the brother of John. This is the sons of Zebedee. This is the ones that we've seen. They've, he's been close to Jesus all of these years. And now he's going to be the first apostle to be martyred. And so history tells us that he was killed with a sword, as Luke says, but others say that he was beheaded by the sword, and it brought public approval. And when Herod saw that it brought public approval, he decided, you know what, let's go after the next of the inner three. Let's go after Peter. And let's capture him, which he did, and he threw him in prison with 16 soldiers guarding him. Verse 2 says, he killed James the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded also to arrest Peter. Church history and tradition says that when James was beheaded, he was such a witness for Christ that he gave a testimony of faith that then caused the guard who was watching him to profess Christ as well, and he also was beheaded next to James. That even in the worst of situations, even in unanswerable circumstances. Well, why is this happening? Why would, why would God allow James to be murdered so violently? Why would he allow this to happen? And so we begin to ask questions about the evils of this world, and we ask, well, well isn't God in control? Isn't he still sitting on his throne? Why, why, this, why does this happen? 
God is sovereignly in control of all of our situations. Even if it's dark, even if it's painful. You see, the battle lines are drawn and the war for advancing the kingdom of God is costly. In fact, if we choose to call ourselves followers of Christ and we choose to spend our lives advancing the kingdom, it will be far from comfortable Christianity. It will be costly Christianity. And somehow we've looked over those verses, like Luke 14, 33. Therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. You see, somewhere along the way in Western Christianity, we proclaimed a gospel that has become about self-esteem and less about being crucified with Christ. It's about how it makes me feel. It's about moral conformity. It's about uh, what I need to do, what I don't need to do. Oh, I like to go to this church because this church does this and this church does this. We've made it about something that it's really not because if we go back to the basics of Scripture, being a follower of Christ means that we renounce all things and we follow him, and it's going to be very costly to us. And James, James knows this all too well. But here's the truth. Christ advances his kingdom with his sovereignty over our situations, whether good or bad. Sometimes he advances it through martyrdom and sometimes through miracles, but always through his will. Either way, Christ is glorified with every kingdom advancement. So as we get to these verses, the first part of Acts chapter 12, it begins with a downer. The church is being persecuted. The church is facing trials. One of the key leaders, one of the ones that was closest to Jesus is, is beheaded. Now Peter has been arrested and he's been thrown in chains. He's got 16 soldiers watching after him. What? It couldn't get much worse. You see, there's trials and there's pains and there's sufferings in this world and it's not a sign that God is punishing us. It's not a sign that he's mad at you. In fact, if you're in Christ, then the wrath of God that you deserve has been placed on Jesus Christ and has passed over you. And yes, there are consequences to sin. There are trials and temptations and persecutions in this life, but there are also promises. There are promises in Christ that aren't dependent upon our actions. They're dependent upon his atoning sacrifice. So if you have your Bibles, flip over real quick to Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. You think about the difficulties of this world and that the evil one is trying to push back on the kingdom of God and that there's different things that we see as the battle lines are being drawn, but we have to understand that there's promises that are dependent upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, not on our actions. And Romans 8 says it very clearly. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? James knew the sword. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to, the, to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! 
man, that is a promise that is not dependent upon our current situation. That is a promise. And it is, it is a promise based on what Christ has done on our behalf, not on what we've done. That's good news. That is great news. That God is sovereignly in control of the worst situations that we find ourselves in. And so verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Sixteen soldiers. They're guarding him because of Jewish tradition. He can't be murdered during the Passover. And so he waits. And while he waits, we see the church. The church is alive. The second thing I want you to see is Christ advances his kingdom by saving us from our shackles of sin. Again, verse 5 through 19. So Peter, this is going to be a fun narrative. I think Luke tells it in such a good way. It's kind of creative and kind of funny. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, the sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Let me stop right there. So here we got Peter. He knows that what's going to happen to him because he's, he knows what happened to James. He's guarded by 16 soldiers. He's got chains on him. He's in this dungeon cell. And he is so worried about the next day that he's snoozing hard, right, between soldiers. He's shackled to him, and he's sleeping, and he's so asleep that when the angel shows up, the big bright light comes, and it's like waking up a teenager. Hey, he kicks him. Like, he strikes him on the side. Peter, wake up. Put your clothes on, man. We got to go. And he's like, oh. And it's kind of like when you wake up in the middle of the night. Now, uh, we, we moved into a new home. And in the middle of the night, it was 2 a.m. because I looked at the clock, the fire alarm went off. And the fire alarm goes off, and it's not just like beeping. The panel is saying, fire detected, fire detected, fire detected. Well, if that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what does. So I forgot all the things you're supposed to do in case there's a fire, and I just ran out into the room like, is there smoke? You know, and luckily there was no smoke. I can't figure out how to work the panel. It just keeps going off. We go through the whole house, and you know, like when you're awake, but you're not awake, and you're kind of in that dazed moment, and you're like, is this even real? And so when I called the alarm company the next day to find out, I had that question. Did it really happen, or was that just something that I made? Like, is this really what? And so I had to ask the rest of the family, yes, it really happened. We woke up in the middle of the night. That was just a side story. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. The word there is basically the Greek word automatic. It was like walking into a grocery store, right? It just opened up. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now, I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me 
from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a murder. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now get this. So this is narrative. He's just explaining exactly what happened. He, he comes to himself, realizes this is not a trance like it was when the pigs in the blanket came down in the, in the you know, previous chapters. And so he's like, oh, this was really what happened. Let me go to John Mark's house. I know the church is there. Knocks on the door. Rhoda's like, oh, it's Peter. And then she just takes off and he's like, hey, let me in. Come on. I just got out of prison. They're going to be looking for me, right? <clears throat> and so they said to her, you're out of your mind. This church that's praying doesn't believe that the prayer was answered, right? But she kept insisting that it was so, and, kept, and they kept saying, ah, it's his angel. Really? They're just going to make up some theology. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened it, they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. This is a different James. This is the half-brother of Jesus who was leading the Jerusalem church and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down to, from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is a great narrative and a very cool story of how God's at work, even in the worst of situations. But there is one thing I want you to see. The early church was a praying church. There's a lot, to, there's a lot we read. But really, I just want you to see verse 5 again. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When difficult things happen, what does the church do? Praise. Earnestly. Albert Muller says this, when the church is found to be faithful, it's always found to be praying. Now, what would we say is a faithful church today? When we describe church as faithful, is prayer at the top of the list? When we think about corporate prayer, we think about the church gathering together and earnestly praying for the people they love. That's a faithful church. Ian Bounds in his book on prayer says this, success is sure to follow a church given to much prayer. The supernatural element in the, in the church without which it must fail comes only through praying. More time in this bustling age must be given to pray by a God-given church. Listen, more time should be given to prayer. And that's personal. Go in, shut the door. God knows what you do in secret. But also more prayer should be done corporately where the church gathers together as brothers and sisters, as a family, and says, let's, let's pray. Let's pray together. More heart and soul must be in the praying that is done if a church would go forth in the strength of her Lord and perform the wonders that is her heritage by divine promise. We are to be a praying church. It says there in verse 5 that it was earnest prayer. The word earnest there, it means to stretch out 
for something with all that you have. It's kind of close to the medical term, which means to stretch your muscles. And I don't know, like when you get older and you got to stretch before you actually do anything with, with activity, you know, when you're a kid, you can just go out and do it. But as you get older, you better stretch. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you do. Yeah, especially if you get over 40, you're like, I didn't, I didn't stretch. So you need to stretch. And it's not fun. No one likes stretching. Well, maybe somebody, but I don't know them. Stretching seems like a waste of time sometimes. It's painful. It takes effort. And when this church is praying, they're stretching themselves. They're praying earnestly. Earnest prayer is not powerful because we're persuading a reluctant God to do something. Earnest prayer is powerful because it's showing God how passionate we are for his will. I get that. It's not that we're praying for God to do something that he's reluctant to do. It's that we're coming alongside passionately and earnestly wanting to do what his will is. So I want you to see these four things from this church, and then we're going to do something a little awkward. We learn from the early church that earnest corporate prayers are part of a covenant community. This was a covenant community. They were together. Not just the place you go, church is part of being a community. A covenant community spends time in corporate fervent prayer. Fervent. We just talked about the word stretching prayer, right? Earnest prayer. They're fervent. A covenant community spends time in corporate faithful prayer. Where was this church late that night when they know Peter's in prison? Faithfully praying. Faithfully praying. A covenant community spends time in corporate focused prayer. This is not the time where they say, you know what, I just have an unspoken and then someone else says, I'd like to echo that unspoken and have my own unspoken. And then it goes on and on. I have an unspoken and I have an unspoken. No, it's focused prayer. This is the need that we have. This is what we're calling out for. Focused prayer. And here's the fourth one. A covenant community spends time in corporate family prayer. Family prayer. Do you see church as family? I hope you do. And if you don't, I hope that you will. I don't want you to miss the fact that church is a family that prays together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the battle lines have been drawn, and we've decided we're on this side, we're on God's side, and it's going to be painful, and there's going to be trials, there's going to be persecutions, there's going to be sickness, there's going to be death, there's going to be heartaches, but we're going to be a praying people on this side of the line because we've chosen today that we will serve the Lord. Amen? James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, Peter's case was hopeless. Humanly speaking, he was, in, he was in prisons surrounded by guards. He was asleep. He was condemned to die. His case pictures us in our sin. We are chained by sin and are unable to escape. We are even asleep in sin, insensitive to it, until God sends his Holy Spirit to break our shackles and free us. This is a good picture of what God does with us in salvation. He sends his light to illuminate the spiritual darkness of our lives and strikes off the shackles of sin so that we might be set free to follow Jesus. So here's the awkward part. We're going to pray because that's what church does. 
And a lot of times we skip over it because it's awkward. And it's uncomfortable. And I don't really know that person sitting around me. I know I should, but I don't have the directory right now so I can look up their name, right? It's okay. We're family. We may not have ever met, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. Who do you know today that is chained to sin? Who is imprisoned by the enemy? And unless God intervenes, they're headed towards an eternal death. Have you thought of somebody? Maybe they used to be part of the church. Maybe they used to be part of a church that you went to. Maybe you knew them at a young age and they proclaimed Christ, but you've seen their life derailed towards slavery to sin. Do you have their name? Don't you think we should corporately pray for them? And this is awkward. And I'm not going to be, I'm, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's awkward. But there's people sitting around you who have a name in their head, and I would love for you to take four to five minutes to just pray. And this is, guess what? This is going to stretch you. This is going to stretch you. So let's stop, and let's pray as a covenant community, community fervently, faithfully, focused, and as a family. So look at those around you. You can go ahead and look. You can go ahead and cheat right, to the, right and left around you. Gather in a group of two, three, four, and if you've got a name, say the name, let's focus, and let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. We bow our knees before you because you're a God who saves. God, in this building right now, you've heard many names lifted up to you. Right now, we would ask that by your sovereign power and your sovereign will, you would break every chain. That you would release the captives that are enslaved to sin. That you would do your miracle work of salvation. That you would send your spirit to awaken their hearts to you. That you would bring back the wanderer. You would bring back the one that's lost. And you would call them by name. And that they would hear and that they would bow their knee before you. Father, right now, if there's someone in this room who does not know you, I would pray, Father, right now, that you would break the chains of their heart. That you would draw them to yourself. That you would lead them towards salvation. Father, right now, that they would bow their knee in repentance of sins that are in their life. Father, you're a powerful, sovereign Lord. May you receive all the glory and all the power and all the praise. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, church. We will wrap up really quickly here with the third point. Christ advances his kingdom with his superiority over our self-exaltation. His superiority over our self-exaltation. Let's finish out the chapter 20 through 25. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now here's what happened. Tyre and Sidon, these are both large commercial port cities that were reliant upon the more agricultural sections of of the country to give them food. And so now they're pleading for food to come. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because... He did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Luke doesn't provide much detail here, but the historian Josephus tells us that apparently Herod had put on some sort of games commemoration games. And when he steps out to give the oration, he steps out in a silver-made robe to reflect the sun's glory. And as he comes out, as he's shining there in this large silver robe, and he begins to talk, the people who are in desperate need of food begin to exalt him. Oh, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. God will not allow that to take place. And so what happens is he strikes him there and some days later he dies. And it says he was eaten by worms, which means he is no God at all because he decomposed. There is only one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not stay in the grave. But he is risen. He has given us life everlasting. The battle lines are drawn My last slide says this, John Stott, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on a rampage, arresting and persecuting, and at the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. 
It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. God will extend his kingdom. And those that we prayed for today, he heard our prayer. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we thank you that you are a miracle-working God, that there are promises that are based not on our actions, but they're based on your action of going to the cross for us, that you took the penalty of our sin and our shame. And God, you have given us your righteousness so that we could have life and have it everlasting. Father, we would ask that you would make us a people who know where the line is drawn in our hearts and that we make sure to stand firm on your side. They would put on the full armor of God and we would go to battle in faith. And we would do all we can to stand firm. Father, I pray for your protection over this church, Lord, as we seek to extend your kingdom to the nations. As we leave here today, let us leave with a heart of prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.